Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. I want to say, I want to give you the end of the message first, and then you can have that in mind as you're listening to the message, because the way I'm, the thing I'm going to give you, the thing I'm going to give you now, which is the end of it, the, way, the thing I'm going to give you now should catch your attention. I want to say this out loud. There are two ways to get saved. Now, here's what concerns me. When I said that, no one said, no. That concerns me a bit, but it could be because some of you know where I'm going with that. There are uh, Technically, there are two ways for us to be reconciled with God despite our sinfulness, okay? And both of them are addressed here in Romans, end of chapter 9, and then into Romans chapter 10. He says, starting in verse 30, of the people of Israel. Now, I'm not preaching right now. I'm not preaching the broader agenda he has here just yet. I'm going to do that in a week or two, but I want to give you a point that you need to have in mind as you're listening to what he's trying to communicate here. You will notice that, I, that when I got to chapters 8, 9, and 10, this is going to occur with chapter 11 as well, that I'm not pre preaching them in, a, in the sequential order in the way that they're presented to you in the passage. I want you to have the 30,000-foot take on what Paul is doing here so you can understand what he's trying to communicate. And the thing I want you to get right now is there are two routes in the the minds of human beings, technically, there are two routes to God. One of them is the fulfillment, the excellent fulfillment, the, uh, the unfettered, the broke, unbroken, the perfect fulfillment of the law, or there is the acceptance of Christ's fulfillment of the law. You can, ex you can perfectly fulfill the law yourself, and I'm hoping that some of you can imagine why that would be a problem, and then, or you can accept why the, the perfect, the excellent fulfillment that Christ has brought to us for the law, of the law, okay? And he's discussing two people groups, Israel and Gentiles, and he's pointing out that each of them has chosen a route. Now, his agenda here is to explain why they've chosen these routes. He's explaining why it's significant that the Gentiles did not choose the same route. He's going to address, I'm going to cover this next week, he's going to address the implications on Israel for, Gentile, for the Gentiles choosing the route that they've chosen. It's a virtuous jealousy that is being provoked in the hearts of the covenant people. And because of that virtuous jealousy, they see all these Gentiles getting access to the God whom they've known since Genesis chapter one, they see, that, they see that occurring, and, and, the, and the agenda here is that upon seeing that, I'm giving you next week's message, upon seeing that, they will, be, they will be moved to move toward that God and choose the same route that the Gentiles have chosen, okay? But in this context, he's letting you know that there are two routes to choose from, and some holy people, some, God, some people who are perceiving God in a certain way have chosen one route, and some people are approaching God in a different way. So starting in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, he says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. Right now, he's giving you one of the two routes. He says, you can receive this by faith. And, I say, and he used the word by faith to refer to you receiving the perfected expression of the law in Christ. Okay? The law is not irrelevant to any of us. The thing it comes down to is, Who's the one executing it? It's not irrelevant to any of us. So but when, whenever you see him use the word by faith, the thing I want you to have in your mind is they are saved by faith. In other words, they have accepted by faith Christ's 
excellent fulfillment of the standard that makes us right with God, okay? And then you have the alternative view, starting verse 32, I'm sorry, uh, verse, at the end of the, the verse 31, but, the, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, that not, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, as if it were based on works. So in other words, you have one person who's pursuing the fulfillment of the law by faith, one camp, the Gentiles in this passage, and you have another camp who are pursuing the fulfillment of the law by works. One is accepting the effort of another, and the other is saying, don't worry about it, I'll take care of that myself. So you have the Israel trying to say, I'm going to get this done on my own. And you have the Gentiles, according to Paul here in the passage, who say that I don't have the capacity to do that. I'm going to receive what he has done on my behalf by faith. Those are the two camps. Those are the two routes. Every single person from the moment they are conceived is either, by, either deliberately or unwittingly choosing one of those two routes. Everyone. Everyone. There is no exception to this. Everyone. The other day I was watching uh, an interview that was done by a, uh, that was, it was a podcast actually, of, uh, and it was a stand-up comedian who was well known for being an atheist, a rather aggressive one, and he was, immediately you all figure out who it was just then, the, uh, uh, he, he was uh, discussing an experience he had where he was in a, in a nightclub and he got on the wrong side of a, of a particular um, hip-hop mogul during the 90s, a very big hip-hop mogul. And I don't mean big as in reputation or name. I mean big as in he's big, okay, and he was red. Okay. You don't know who it is. Okay. Okay. He's big. Cigars. And he was red. Okay, thank you, Jesus. Okay. Yes, ask all the saved people behind you who I'm talking about. Okay, so he got on the wrong side of this person and uh, because he offended some woman who was in this particular mogul's entourage. And, and his friend, another a friend of his who was, who, was a, who was another artist, said, we should leave. And the comedian says, no, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to have this looming over me for the rest of my life. We're going to confront this thing right now, which I find fascinating. And so when the, the mogul comes over to him to address what just happened, he's preparing himself. He's preparing himself for whatever is about to happen. I'm either about to resolve this verbally or I'm going to die here at his hand. He's literally going to crush me under his thumb here in this in this club, and then the, the, the mogul came up to him and said, you know, I'm a fan, and, and your, your, your work got me through the time when I was in a rough season, when I was on lockdown, and that kind of thing. Just He explained all of that to him, and he says, don't worry about that. I'll figure it out with her, but you and I were good, and as he walked away, the comedian, who is a very aggressive atheist, it's not even atheism, it's anti-theism. It's not merely that he doesn't believe in God. It's that he aggressively rejects the idea that it's okay for you to believe in God. And as the, as the hip-hop mogul is walking away, he says to his friend, Thanks, thank you, Jesus. He says, well, wait a minute. Out of, the, out, of the, out of the expressed mouth of atheism comes a moment of awareness and a desire to give praise to the one who may have just saved your life from your foolishness. Okay? That's a moment where, where I'm telling you Psalm 19 has significance to me. It is impossible for a person to wake up from the moment of conception and conclude that God is not a God. 
Now, I want to make this very clear, and I just did a lot of work on this this past week. I am not saying that the God that is proven by nature is worthy of worship. There's a, there's a philosopher named Mortimer J. Adler who says, philosophy can prove the existence of a God, the unmoved mover, the unmade maker, the uncaused cause. It can prove the existence of such a being, but it cannot prove that that being is knowable and is all-loving and accessible. So the, he says that the God of philosophy should not be worshipped. God, philosophy can prove God's existence, but you need willful revelation from God to know these things about him. I will concede that right away, right away. Having said that, it is in the minds and hearts of everyone who exists that God exists. And because everyone, even those who claim to be atheist or anti-theist, they, because they know that and they are willfully trying to deny it, they have chosen one of two routes. They will either fulfill an excellent law that will make them worthy of that God, or they will accept the sacrifice of that God who has made them right with himself. Everyone chooses one of those two routes. Everyone. You're either working to God or you are receiving his efforts to come to you. You're either working to him, or you are receiving his effort to come to you. Everyone, everyone, that is not, there is no exception to what I just said. Everyone is in one of those two categories. Everyone. It's innate, this is Paul in the same book, it is innate to human beings to know that there is a God who, de who deserves our pursuit, and it is innate to human beings to know that we either must get to him of our own efforts or receive the effort he's made on our behalf. Now, Paul's going to address this in some clarity because he wants to express which of those two routes you should choose and the implications of choosing them. He says, starting in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that the them and there is Israel. My heart's and, God, and desire and prayer to God for them is that they, be, that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, here's what he just said. The them in verses 1 through 3 is Israel, and he has already given his hand. He's letting you know that of the two routes, working to him or receiving his efforts to come to you, he has let, them let you know which of the two he affirms because he immediately provides a critique of the efforts of the people, Israel, who are trying to work to them. He says, my desire is that they would be saved. The problem is they have all of this zeal, but no understanding because they believe that God is low enough for us to get to him. If you go to the corner of Martin Luther King Boulevard and 175 in South Dallas, on any given day, especially a Saturday, you're going to see at least four, as many as six men standing there in dark suits and bow ties. And they're selling a paper called The, uh, the Final Call, and they're selling bean pies, which if you hadn't had one, you should try it out, okay? It's, imagine a sweet potato pie with bean, well, I'm in Denver, okay. Imagine a pumpkin pie. I forgot where I was for a second. Imagine a pumpkin pie, but good, okay? 
Don't send me an email. So the, so the, the, on that corner, selling these bean pies, and, uh, and it's because the Muslim mosque, number 28, I believe, I, keep, I can't remember the number anymore, is not far from that corner, and these are representatives of the Nation of Islam, and, and they will stop you, because they, they stand on that corner because it's a, there are four traffic lights there on that corner, and they want to catch you at the car because you have to stop. They have a captive audience for 60 seconds, and they're going to be sure that you get this smoke while you're there on the corner. So... Uh, when I was a very new believer, had been a Christian for, I don't know, six, seven months, and, and everything was about preaching to whoever stood still in front of me. It hasn't changed that much, but uh, everything was about preaching to whoever's going to sit still in front of me. I stopped there, and then a man comes over to me, and he was had grown accustomed to people very deliberately seeing to it that he was shielded away from them so he couldn't speak to them. Now, you have to understand this. It's easy to justify that to some degree because it's August. And it's, this is Dallas. So it's 100,000 degrees. So everyone keeps their windows up, and their justification for that is, my air conditioner is on. I can't hear you, brother. I can't hear you because I have the AC on, and I can't let the window down because all my cool air will get out. But he doesn't care. He's thinking, you're going you gonna to listen to me through this window because I'm standing here in a black suit to let you know I don't care. Let you know I ain't worried about your air conditioning in this window. You're going to catch this. So he was accustomed to people shooing him away. And so he took note of the fact that as he approached my car, another 21-year-old Brandon in there, I hit the, I hit the button. Like, we got 60 seconds before this light changes. What you got for me? And he says to me, do you want to hear how you can be made right with God? I said, do you want to hear how, we can, how you can be made right with God. Listen to me. I got this, okay? You, you need to talk to me because I already know what's up. He says, no, you, he says, he says, you must be one of them Christians. I said, you need to get on this train, bro. And he, he starts talking to me about what righteousness with God is and how we can experience wholesome. Now, if you understand this, the nation of Islam is not Orthodox Islam. It's oftentimes more fixed on works and effort than Orthodox Islam is. Oftentimes, because there's this marriage, and no one caught this for some reason, there's this marriage between Orthodox Islam, agnosticism, and Christianity, and that's how you get the nation of Islam. It's no, it's no accident that the founder is, the, is a former preacher and the child of a preacher. He brought much of his erroneous pagan Christian perspective into nation of Islam teaching. And his agenda was to reject some orthodox ideas. So he's that's some of the paganism and the and the agnosticism. But he's bringing he's bringing these pagan ideas to Christianity. He's mingling them with Islam and mixing them with Islamic terms. And this man's explained to me on the corner. And I gave him his full 15 seconds. And I explained to him now none of that is true. You cannot be made right with God of your own effort. He says, "What kind of God is that?" I said, "A big one." He says, my God's bigger than yours. I said, listen to me. Your God is so small that you can go get him. Your, your God is so low. He's so down. He's so close to where we are that if you build the right facility, if you, if you purchase the right ladder, you are able to climb up to him. I'm telling you that my God is so high that he knows that my efforts to get to where he is are futile. 
He knows that. You're you're stumbling over the fact that he came down, that I have a God who's so knowable that he came down to get me. And I'm telling you, he had to come down because it's impossible to get to where he is. Of the two of us, I have the holier, the bigger God. And the difference between our two gods is, number one, mine exists. But the other thing is, my God knows I can't get to him. And you're stumbling over the fact that he's gracious enough to come get someone who cannot get to him. You have a flawed view of what we're trying to do here. You know what this is? It's the Tower of Babel. It's the Tower of Babel. It's this this attempt to to display human ingenuity. It's it's an attempt to display human competence, human ability. You know the story. Read the book of Genesis where their, their agenda was to show their human ingenuity. They all have a common language. And God has told them, guys, I need y all to spread out. I need you all to spread out because I want you to to be fruitful, multiply, and take my identity, take the image bearing all over the planet. I need y'all to spread out. And they said, they said among themselves, God don't know what he's talking about. So we're going to stay together because we're better together. And we all have this common language. We're going to do this in this unison state, and we're going to build up this, this, this tower, this, this ziggurat, this pyramid, and we're going to get it as high as we can get it. And we're going to use it to show God our competence as a unit because we're all together. So we're going to build it and get it high. And, and God, I love that he does this. He steps back and lets them do it. He says, go ahead, get to work. Yeah, go ahead and chop down my trees. I don't care. You know, I'll make some more. I'm, I'm God. Don't worry about it. Just take, chop the trees down. Make, make the tower. He sits back and he watches them do it. Quietly. Doesn't interrupt them. As a parent, I appreciate this now. I'll have a whole different perspective on this now. He's like, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. And they spent however long. However long, this was not a day's work, this was not a week's work, this was not a month's work, this was years of effort. And they get this, this tower as high as they can get it. They get it as lofty as it can be. They have used all of their ingenuity to, ingenuity to erect this facility that displays their competence. And then the Bible says that once they were done, once it was as high as it could get, then God came down and confused their language. And everyone reads the passage too fast. Because you missed the fact that once they got the tower, once the fruit of their corporate ingenuity was at its peak, once they got it as high as it as it could get, God still had to come down to where they were to confuse their language. The God we have is so high and lifted up. He's so other. He's so lofty that any efforts to work toward him are futile. He has to come down if we are to have him. And that's why Paul is able to say here, they have a zeal. They're building towers, and they have all these rules that they keep, and they have a fervor, and they've, they've erected this, this they've, they've built this barrier around the law, and they've ordained certain officers, um, um, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, to see to it that the law is set and that there's a proper border around the law to keep the law in place. They have a zeal. The problem is they don't have any knowledge. They understand what the law says, but they don't appreciate what the law is. The law is not intended for you to pursue righteousness with God by keeping the law. The whole point of the law is for you to realize you cannot achieve righteousness because you will repeatedly violate that law. James says that the law is a mirror. 
and into it, you look into it to get a glimpse of who you actually are. And when you see who you are, you realize the significant space, the significant gap between God and us. The law is not there for you to be perfect. The law is there to remind you of your imperfection. That same James, he says, he, says, he, he treats the, the law as a chain. It's, it's connected with a series of links. And he says when one of the links breaks, the entire chain is affected by that one. So when you violate one facet of the law, you have violated the entire thing. That should be devastating for you. If you have chosen of the two routes, the one where you work your way to him, then it should, it should concern you that every time you fall short, you have not just violated that place where you fell short, you violated the law in its entirety. The whole thing is in disrepair. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is, that is to say, don't, don't say in your heart who's going to get up there. Remember, he's high. And Paul is saying, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to say, to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to say, to bring Christ up from dead. But what, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we, that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So he's letting you know in verse 9 what the formula is. Instead of the effort toward him, this is what the pursuit is. This is what the faith package is. This is what faith looks like. You've confessed, uh, you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe that God raised him from the dead, and, that, and as a result of that, you shall be saved. Now, I need to be careful here, because I don't want you to think of that as a magic mantra. Please don't do that. Uh, more than one person has asked me. I'm not opposed to this at all, okay, but... More than one person has asked me why I do not do, because we often bring to church the experiences from our own childhood, our church experiences. And so when you get to a church, you will sometimes ask, why don't you do what every pastor I've ever had does? And that is at the end of the sermon, you do a brief presentation of the gospel, and then you do the altar call. The doors of the church are now open, and we line up some. We line up some of the folding chairs right here, and this person over here is a candidate for baptism, and this person is rededicating their life, and this person is giving their, Lord, their, their life to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You open the doors of the church after you after you do a gospel presentation at the end of the message, and I don't do that on a regular basis. I'm not opposed to it at all, but I don't do it on a regular basis for two reasons. Number one. Um, I try to have that message come as a brief transition into our time at the Lord's table every week. And the other thing is, uh, the gospel should be an outworking of every sermon so it does not get tacked on at the end of the message. You tracking with that? Yeah, that's how I grew up. That's how, that's how the pastor rocket, we, he could preach a sermon on the color of the pews. Don't let the pews be red, Lord Jesus. He's going to be all over that. 
He could be preaching on tithing. He's going to tell you about the greatest sacrifice. He's going to teach you about, about the logo. He's going to tell you what it is to be stamped by the seal of the Holy Spirit. He's going to tell you about the parking lot. And he's going to tell you about the day when we will experience what it is to walk on streets paved with gold and they will be irrelevant to us because we will be in the presence of the risen king. I'm telling you, the message always comes back to the gospel. Always. Otherwise, what are we doing? Always comes back to this. And here's what I want you to hear me say right now. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe that God raised him from the dead, that's the snapshot of it. But I don't want you to think that you got saved because at the end of a message one day, someone said that, and then they led you in the sinner's prayer. And because they led you in their prayer, I'm now saved because we did all the magic box checking that gets me into Jesus. Verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Here's why Romans would have heard that differently from us. In Rome, Caesar is Lord. They would have noticed that right away. In Rome, the king, Caesar, is Lord. And Paul shows up and says, I mean, he is lowercase l. He's here with permission of someone higher. He's serving at the behest of another. He's Lord in that regard. In regard, in that regard. But in, in regards to your eternal condition, he's dying just like you. In fact, that Caesar needs to read verse 9. They would have immediately caught that. It's not merely going through the process of where you say, Jesus is Lord, and I believe he got up. Amen. I'm saved now. No, there is, there is a level of commitment. There's a level of surrender that comes with saying that he is Lord. This passage comes to mind for me every time I consider the season of my life when everyone was saying things like, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, but not as my Lord. Here's the problem. Verse 9 said that it's the Lord who saved you. So you cannot accept his salvation with no regard for his lordship because it is in his lordship that he saved you. He was not merely dying for sin. He was dying to have you. He was not making you clean so you could just have cleanliness. He was dying so that you could recognize what it is to be surrendered to him as your king. And he then lets you know, Paul, he then lets you know in verse 9 what type of sacrifice he's talking about. He says, not only do you identify him as your master, your Lord, but you genuinely surrender your heart to the idea, the genuine belief, that he has been risen from the dead. You genuinely believe that. The one who is Lord died and then got up. And not only did he get up from death, but he ascended, so he now reigns, legitimizing the, the appeal to him as Lord. The one to whom we appeal is one to whom we've surrendered our lives as our master. And we believe that he is worthy of being that master because he conquered death. He is Lord and alive. That's verse 9. He's Lord and alive. He says, if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and genuinely believe that he is alive, he's, if you have genuinely surrendered, built your life around the idea. Think about this for just a moment. This is what Paul is telling you to do. Build your life around the concept that we have a Lord who was dead but is now alive. He says, you will not do that unless you are doing it under the direction of the Spirit of God. That is a proof and the means to your salvation. 
If you believe, genuinely believe, enough when you say it out loud, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and genuinely believe that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. You do that, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, only by the direction, the unction, the moving of the Spirit of God. Because if you think about it, hear me out. If you think about it, our story is crazy. Think about it. Whenever I sit down with a non-believer and they come to me with the craziness of our story, they're taken aback by the fact that I say, yeah, it is. Think about it. Nothing existed. Then God, who always existed, stepped out onto nothing and said, universe, be. And the universe said, okay. And then leapt into existence. And then he, over the course of Six days, carefully manicured everything that leapt into existence. So he created the greater and lesser lights. He created the fish that inhabit the waters. He created the beasts that occupy the fields. And he arranged vegetation and food consumption for everything. And then on the last day, he created human beings. On the second half of the last day, he created human beings over a process of very carefully uh, nesting. He prepared for those who would be made in his image on the last day. And then one of them is responsible for tending the garden, and he makes a spouse for that one, and then two of them are responsible for it together. And then after they have this moment of cosmic treason where they rebel against him because they ate fruit in the garden, the Bible says nothing about an apple, He's, he consumes fruit there in the garden, and because of that, they are now on the outs with God, and they're removed from the garden. And then the next several millennia is humanity temporarily sacrificing for the sake of having momentary righteousness with God. Bulls and lamb are sacrificed for momentary, temporary, momentary righteousness with God. And then you had this 400-year silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And then at the beginning of the New Testament, you have a birth announcement because the incarnate, the, the eternal son becomes the incarnate son of God and is born. And now salvation has come in the form of a man who is God. And he lives a perfect life for three decades. And because he lived a perfect life and had the temerity to tell the truth about himself, I am the savior, I am the king, I am. Because he told the truth about himself, Religious leaders took offense because they're still trying to figure out how they can work their way to God by fulfilling the law and being made right of their own efforts. And the whole time he's saying to them, you can't do that. Life and, re and resurrection are in me. Because he told the truth about himself and called himself the king of the Jews, they took offense and they tricked they tricked Rome into executing him. And they did so, Rome did so unwillingly. In fact, it was against the law for them to do it in the way that they did it. But they did it anyway, and then he dies publicly. Publicly he dies, publicly. And his, at his death, the Bible says that dead people got up from tombs and walked around. And then three days later, the women go to the tomb to embalm his body. And when they get there, he's not there. Let me say this, commercial break for just a second. 
when they, get, when they get there and they look in the tomb, everyone reads this too fast. It says that he was not there and that his, his, his death clothes, his linens were neatly folded and placed at the head of the slab where his body was resting. I got to tell you something, that always fascinates me because he's like, okay, oh, let me kind of clean this spot up before I go. You know, I know this for a fact, because the people who discovered his, his, his non-present body were women. And I'm telling you, they ran back to the men and said, guys, listen to me. He's risen. And they said, we don't believe you. And they said, he folded his clothes. And they said, we got to see this. Angelic beings say to the women, why are you here among the dead? Looking for the living. He ain't here because he got up. And he came back and he reintroduced himself as the risen king. And he let them know, starting at Genesis chapter 1, all the way through the end of the Gospels, everything that the Bible says about him and how all of this had to occur. And the Bible says that he's going to return for us, and the next time he comes back, there will be no confusion regarding who he is. He'll have brazen on his body, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The first time he came entering the city on the donkey, the foal of a donkey. The Bible says next time he, come, he comes back, he's going to be riding a horse of war. There will be no confusion who he is. And he says, the Bible says, we will not even get a chance to get into the fight because as we're lined up against his enemies, he's going to merely open his mouth and the word of truth will leave his mouth and in the battle. And he'll be, and he's going to catch us up in the air and we will experience the eternal residency, eternal bliss with him for all eternity. And my friends look at me and said, you really believe that? I said, mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to come? This is crazy. I know it is. It's true. And I genuinely lean into that by faith. It's a reasonable faith. It's not a blind faith. But it's, it's a genuine. Philosophy can get you only so far. And then at a certain point, you got to say, okay, it's proven all is about God. Now I gotta prove, I gotta believe what God has said about Himself. And the thing He said about Himself is all of that I just gave you. And if I genuinely believe that He, the one who did all that, is Lord, and that He actually raised from the dead, then I shall be saved. Here's the concern I have it is possible to put Jesus' name in your mouth, but not have the genuine confession and belief of Romans chapter 10, verse 9. I cannot tell you how many people I've encountered who have Jesus in their mouths, but they do not show the fruits of Romans chapter 10, verse 9. I do not believe it's my responsibility or my ability to evaluate whether or not they genuinely know him. I, I need to say that out loud. Did you hear me say that? Did you hear me say that? No, I cannot move on until you have communicated to me that you heard me say that I cannot be the one who assesses whether or not they are in Christ, whether that they know him intimately. I cannot do that. God knows that perfectly. I cannot possibly know the operation, the mechanics of their heart. However, you cannot, you, a, a tree is evidenced by its fruit. And I can't tell you how many times I've said, you know, you speak a good, you talk a good game, but the life you live seems to be playing a different game. You over here breaking down chess, but man, you playing 
monopoly over here. I don't understand how, I don't understand how your, your words and your actions are in such conflict. Yesterday, I was getting ready to leave. I had to go to the office. I have a, I have a manuscript due. I have a manuscript due on Friday. And then I have another one due on the 31st. So I live in, uh, I live in my study, at least for the next two and a half, three weeks. And uh, as I'm getting ready to leave, it's hard for me to leave, especially on a Saturday, because we end up getting to uh, the kids are waking up, family conversations as I'm leaving. And I somewhat blame Sharif for this, because she'll, she'll draw me into these conversations, because she's explaining something to the kids regarding, what was it again? The sleep cycle thing? Yeah, she was having a conversation with the kids about the circadian, their circadian rhythm. I'm like, okay, and then I gotta go. And then, and then she used me as the example of the circadian rhythm and how, I, how dad is a, a night owl, he's not a morning person, but the world don't work that way. So you gotta be somewhere in the morning, you get up and you gotta go, whether you can't go to your boss and say, well, my circadian rhythm has me getting up. That's not how the world works. And so she says, your daddy has to get up and go do this because that's how, you, know, you can't use this as your fallback, your reference point. And then that turns into a conversation with them. And then what I'm writing right now comes up, and I'm explaining this. And I say this in passing, just mention some, uh, some, some well-regarded preachers from, our, from history who were slave owners. I mention that. And then you have to understand how my son's, my son's mind works. Once Ellis hears something that catches his attention, he leaves the conversation. I'm done. He doesn't leave because he doesn't care what you're about to say, but he doesn't want to forget what you just said so that when you guys stop talking about this nonsense y'all talking about, he can come back to the thing that had his attention and ask about that. So I mentioned people like Jonathan Edwards, who was a stalwart of the Great Awakening, owned slaves, changed his, the slaves' names because he wanted them to have names befitting the home of a minister. He purchased a 14-year-old girl. That caught Reese's attention. He purchased a 14-year-old girl named Venus, changed her name to Leah, because he wanted her name to reflect the household of a pastor. He wanted to have a biblical name. He did that with several Christians. In fact, he did not believe in the transatlantic slave trade. He thought that was man-stealing, and it was a biblical uh, imperative against man-stealing. But he did believe in chattel slavery. So he would not purchase an African-born slave, but he would purchase an American-born African descendant and enslave them. He found a loophole in the system. And I said that and I moved on because it wasn't just him, it was George Whitfield and there's another uh, well-known Presbyterian leader named Robert Dabney. Just, I just started dropping names and I just I keep moving. And then when we're getting ready to go, I'm getting ready to leave, Ella said, wait a minute. And we had talked about 14 things since then. That is gone. That was 20 minutes ago. That is over. And Ellis looked at me and says, preachers own slaves? I said, yeah, boy. Yeah. The Southern Baptist Convention exists for that purpose. Because Northern Baptists outlawed slavery. And Southern Baptist says, I know what we'll do. We'll make our own convention that will give us license to own slaves. The Presbyterian Church of America, for that same reason, started that denomination. The Methodist Episcopal Church, they allowed black people in, but they segregated the sex sanctuary. In fact, there is a church on the corner 
of Colorado and Martin Luther King Boulevard, shorter, AME Church. The AME Church exists because the Methodist Episcopal Church evicted black Christians who came down to the prayer altar during prayer. Literally picked them up while they were in the midst of prayer and kicked them out. And Richard Allen, a former slave, said, okay, we're done. And he founded the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the oldest black denomination in America. That was all a part of our, that's all a part of our history. The question is, wait a minute, how can they be preachers of the gospel and own human beings? And I said, son, it is possible to have Jesus in your mouth. and not have the Jesus of whom you're speaking. It is possible to lead people to Christ and not have the Christ to whom you are leading people. It's the reason Paul says to us that we too are to make sure of our salvation. It's the reason God says to us we are to lean into Christ who will complete the work that he has initiated, the one he has started in us. Not everyone who says his name knows the significance of Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That is, to have him as Lord and to genuinely believe that the one who is Lord is right now alive. One of the best messages I've ever heard preached on Jesus was preached by a non-Christian. Because when I was in high school, I was Nation of Islam. And I was among that crew who went to the convention center, among the men. In I did not know this at the time, but it was the runway for the Million Man March. And they were having these gatherings all over the country, men only. And I was among that crew, to me and three friends of mine, who went to the convention center, and I heard uh, Louis Farrakhan deliver a message about Jesus that was the most entertaining time I've ever had. And listen to me, not a word he said was true. But it was entertaining. I got to tell you, it was a pep rally. We left there hype. Everybody was high-fiving. The, air, the airline had lost his books, had lost his notes, so he had to do it off the dome. And he can do that. He came in there and he had us on our feet. In the midst of it, there was a there was a slender white man with long hair near the front of the room. He was sitting, I was up in the balcony, and he was down the, the, he was down the main floor. And the entire time, my friends and I were thinking, why is he here? This is, did he not get the memo? Read the room, brother. This is, why are you here? And toward the end of Farrakhan's message, I don't know if this was, if it was his plan or if this the spirit of God took over. Because you got to realize the context he was in. Farrakhan was, 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 was cloaked by fruits of Islam. And it was fly. I got to tell you this. Just, if, you're, if you're a teenager, it's fly. They're all dressed alike. They got the bow ties going. When the crowd applauded, they will all stand up and give us that don't start no stuff look. And then when the crowd sat down and settled down, each of the fruits of Islam would sit down, but they would, they would do it in a contagion, one at a time. I was like, man, that's fly. Come on, y'all. Come on. Let's go. Let's, let's go. We need to get down with this. And that did not intimidate this, this one white man 
who was sitting on the main floor, did not intimidate him at all. Toward the end of his message, he got up, and in a room with thousands of people and unmiked, he, in the very short time he had, preached the unfettered gospel. In a room, a white man, in a room surrounded by thousands of black men. I got to say this for the record. He didn't get that much out now. He didn't get that much out. In fact, before he was done, he was off the ground. They literally picked him up and lifted him above their heads and ushered him out of the room. His text, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. You know why? I ain't got that much time. I know what's going to happen when I get up. I don't have that much time. So he made sure everyone, he made sure everyone in the room knew. Everyone here, self-included, born in sin, you desperately need a Savior who is worthy of salvation. He's, he has the means of being your Savior. My promise to you that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus, not Farrakhan, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus, not Elijah Muhammad, is Lord, and you genuinely believe that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. And he was carried out the room. And I got to tell you something, didn't get saved that day, didn't get saved for another four years. But when, when my pastor shared the gospel with me, I said to him, you know, I've heard this before. Where'd you hear it? I heard it at Nation Islam rally. He said, you did? I said, well, it didn't come from the platform, no. It Best sermon I've ever heard in my life. And it is my genuine appeal to you to quickly, thoroughly, immediately self-assess, do I believe that Jesus is Lord? Don't turn this into legalism. Don't turn this into a thing you got to do to make yourself right with him. Don't turn this into a checklist. Don't start box checking. Just do a heart assessment. Do I genuinely believe that he is alive and he reigns? He's no longer dead. Not only did he, not only is he not dead, but he died and then got up, which means he conquered death. So he present tense reigns. I'm not waiting for him to be placed on a throne. He right now sits on his throne, and from it he reigns. He's not one of the ones reigning. He has no peers. There's no one and no thing like him. I genuinely believe that. Have we paused to do that assessment? And then after you've done that and, you, and you've concluded that it is so, then live however you want. Because if he's your Lord and he is risen, then the life you live will embody having him as a risen Lord. Now we'll get to the rest of it next week. Maybe. But hear me out. There's a, uh, there's a well-known theologian who happened to grow up in the same neighborhood I grew up in. I did not find this out until a few months ago. Uh, he happened to grow up in the same neighborhood I grew up in. He, he attended a high school that my school bus passed every day on my way to. I didn't go to school in my neighborhood, so I had to ride the bus 
to the school where I went, and I passed by the school that he attended for um, when, for every day, the whole time I was in high school. And he's known for being um, direct and curmudgeonly, okay? And uh, in fact, some of the stuff he typically says, I can't say here, because you guys would, I want you guys to come back. Some of the language he uses, I can't repeat here. Um, but there was one occasion when he was in a debate with a non-believer, a public debate in front of an audience. And they went back and forth, and, and they weren't, it was not an atheist, it was a person who was a non-Christian. So he wasn't debating the existence of God. He was debating the relevance of Christ and, and the evidence of his resurrection and the, and the fruits of him having resurrected. He was breaking that down for him. And then at the end of that debate, the, the format that they had was they had this quick exchange. So they had done these 20 minutes and then 15 minutes and 10 minutes, and then each of them had a five-minute final statement, which gave him room for the, which gave him room, the believer gave him room for the rebuttal. And he says, I don't need five minutes. I don't need the five minutes. This is my final statement. Jesus is Lord. Everything else is nonsense. Thank you for having me. I was like, my dudes. Like, people like you exist. Jesus is Lord. Everything else is nonsense. It's our efforts to get to God. But our efforts to get to God are evidence of how low the God we conceived is. If the God we worship is the type of God that I'm referring to, when I read Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it's evidence of that type of lordship and that type of risenness, then our efforts to get to him are futile. Jesus is Lord, and because of that, everything else is nonsense.